From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Calls for justice in the Elijah McClain case are flooding this state representative's email inbox. Well, it's wild. As of right now, I have 82,962. And more come in every few seconds. We'll read from some of them with Representative Daphna Michelson Janay. Her Aurora district includes the spot where police placed McLean in a chokehold, where medics chemically subdued him before he later died in the hospital. Then, investigative reporter Jeremy Hahola of Nine News. He just won a prestigious award for his look at homegrown hate. White supremacists showed up at his doorstep trying to intimidate him. Later, a Colorado family becomes a case study to understand the complexities of schizophrenia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The world is now paying attention to the death of Elijah McClain, the case in which a 23-year-old was placed in a chokehold, chemically restrained, and later died, is almost a year old. Some key developments. There will be at least three reinvestigations. The state's a federal civil rights inquiry, and just last night, the Aurora City Council announced it'll pick a team of investigators to see if its own rules were broken. Last week, three Aurora officers were fired, a fourth resigned over a photo appearing to mock McLean's death. None of the officers involved in his arrest have been charged. All these developments, all this attention, including the protests, mean State Representative Daphna Michelson Janay is getting an earful. Tens of thousands of emails calling for justice. She represents the district where McLean lived and died. Welcome to the program. Well, it's an honor to be here. I wish under better circumstances. I want to start with your reaction to the firing of the Aurora officers in connection with the photo. Uh, Yeah, I think those firings were warranted and called for as far as called for by the community and the, the world as they're watching what happened here to Elijah. You know, I think there are some who would think, gosh, officers have been fired for mocking the death, but they haven't been fired, those officers who were involved in Elijah McClain's death. Just contrast that for me. It's a tough one to contrast. I know that there is a little element of due process here, not that Elijah was warranted any due process. And we are going through that process. And and we even heard that the FBI is involved in this process. Indeed. Do you consider this a murder? I do consider this a murder. Absolutely. On on what grounds? Well, first of all, I'm not a judge. Um, I am speaking solely as myself, as a neighbor of Elijah's, and seeing how the force was unwarranted for a young man who uh, is different than others. And my own son is different, and I often wonder if he were in a similar situation, would he have a similar end? And the difference between Elijah and my son is uh, my son was born white. When he was stopped in August of 2019, McLean had broken no laws, posed no threat to police when they arrived to investigate a 911 call about him. Uh, And as we said, he was one of your constituents when he died. Representative, I understand over the last three weeks, you've received more than 80,000 emails from all over the world demanding justice for McLean. 
What has that been like? Well, it's wild. As of right now, I have 82,962. At some points, they come in at a rate of one every 8 to 15 seconds. And I think that what it's like is this incredible eyes-wide-open moment, this outcrying for help, this outcrying for an end to police brutality. And it is breathtaking to see so many people taking their time to reach out. I want to preface this next question by saying I'm not sure the difference matters, but are they original composed emails? Do they appear to be some sort of form letter? I mean, I think what's important to acknowledge is that both of those are reflections of people taking the time to speak up. But um, just give us a sense of the nature of these messages. Yes. Many of them are simply a form letter. Most of them have some sort of an individual component to them, especially if they're a constituent. There's something personal that they have added. And recently, they're coming in looking almost as if they're written in code because they're afraid of filters and they're afraid that we're not paying attention. And I just want people to know that we are absolutely paying attention. I'm not sure what you mean by the code. Oh, so um, one that arrived uh, just two minutes ago, or here, the one that just popped in the box right now, the subject, you can't really read it. Um, It spells Elijah McClain, E-V-L-I-J-A-Q-H-M-W-C-C-L-A-I-6-N, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera so that one wouldn't be able to filter out emails referring to Ah, Elijah McClain. Got it, got it. Uh, But the point is that you are reading these, and I know that you have the help of some of your interns, in fact, who are poring over these with you. Before we hear about what their experience has been like, because we talked to one of your interns, would you just read from a few of the emails that have stuck out to you? And and they are coming from all over the world. Do I have that right? Not just your district. They do. But I have a selection here that I pulled out that are from my district, if that's all right with you. Yes, of course. So the first one I wanted to read from is from Lena. And she writes, I'm a resident of Aurora, Colorado, living near Colfax Elementary, a school I volunteer at from time to time. One of my friends is among APD, or Aurora Police Department, ranks. They joined Aurora PD a number of years back, and I was so happy for them. I understand that there are good individuals in APD, but unfortunately, the entire system has made it difficult for cops who make grave mistakes to face punishment. And I think for me, what resonates here is, first of all, she's a constituent, which is always something that is very important to me and and my obligation. Second of all, she talks about that difficulty in there are good cops and how do we fix this system while understanding there are inherently decent people who are trying to work for our best interests. So, you know, hers really stood out for me. Yeah, let me just say Um, that she has articulated something that I haven't 
really thought about. Like, you hear often the bad apples argument, like, oh, there are just a few bad apples and most police officers are good. I think what she is saying is the system may be the bad apple. Mm-hmm. Yes, she absolutely does say that. She absolutely does say that. Okay, what else? What else stands out? Um, then we have Sarah, who says, My name is Sarah. With all that is happening in this world, justice needs to be served. Justice for his life, justice for his family, justice for his wrongful death that has been swept underneath the rug for a year. This is enough. This is unacceptable, and action is needed. And she put it into her own words, but it, she also had the the cut and paste underneath that. But it is justice, and what does justice mean, and how can we bring justice to a mother who has lost her son? How about so it's one, heavy. Yeah, how about one more? Um, we have Susan, who says, My name is Susan, and I'm a resident of Aurora, Colorado, the city where this awful event happened that caused the loss of a better and gentle soul. And we learned after his death what a gentle soul Elijah was. A massage therapist by trade, a musician who played music for shelter animals to calm them. (laughs) Devastating loss. If I have this right, the number of emails you've received so far is commensurate with the number of people in your district. And I'm not saying that everyone in your district has written you a letter, but it just goes to show the size of the outpouring. Absolutely. And I think that that's one of the things that blows my mind. I mean, three more emails just popped in in the last few seconds. I'm just I'm watching the inbox. And I don't believe this outpouring will stop until there is an acceptable answer. And I think this outpouring is bigger than Elijah. We look at Elijah and we see this beautiful soul, a young man named after a prophet for those who who believe in Elijah the prophet. You know, here we have this young man who's named after Elijah. And if we had to lose him, who, who won't we lose? Do you believe officers when they say that he struggled and that he uh, reached for one of their firearms? It doesn't ring true to me. I mentioned that you have interns who are helping you pour over these many emails. One of them is 16-year-old Loveline Carr. She lives in Arvada, attends Stanley Lake High School. She is Indian-American and feels some solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. When I read these emails and I, re- I receive all these like voicemails, it just pushes me for- further to drive more for justice, do more, even no matter what it is, you know, what ever I can do and it also as a person of color makes me it brings me a lot of hope do you see these representative as historical documents absolutely I look at what's happening as that tipping point for the change that we need look at how much has happened so far when we passed our senate bill at the end of session this year the reforms that were in that bill had been worked on for five, six, some 10 years, and there wasn't an appetite to address them. And here in this moment where the community has come together and stood up and said, enough, enough, now we're at the point we can make change. Speaking of uh, Senate Bill 217, the police brutality bill and 
I'll also just say that in Aurora, where Elijah McLean was placed under a carotid hold, that kind of hold became illegal in the city and becomes illegal statewide under the police brutality bill, correct? That is correct, and it is one of the things that I'm so grateful about. State Representative Daphna Michelson Janay, Democrat of Aurora, is our guest. The late Elijah McLean was one of her constituents. His death while in custody has gotten renewed attention after the police killing of George Floyd. Michelson Janay has received more than 80,000 emails calling for justice in McLean's case. I'll note that CBS4 reports two of the officers involved in that selfie are appealing their terminations. Let's get back to my conversation with State Representative Daphna Michelson Janay. The Aurora lawmaker represents the district where McLean lived and died, and she's gotten tens of thousands of emails calling for justice. A note that this next part of the conversation contains a recording of McLean's arrest, which is disturbing. When did the case of Elijah McLean come into your awareness? Well, I first heard about it as it first came out into the public eye, which is almost a year ago, that we had lost a young man who was in police custody. I don't believe that we learned, I myself learned the full extent of everything until very recently. And quite frankly, the public outcry uh, for Elijah began approximately two weeks ago in my inbox. In your inbox. I think what I hear you saying is that you were aware of the case in a kind of distant way, but that it is absolutely the voice of protesters who have brought this front and center for you. Does that mean they have succeeded in your mind? I believe they have absolutely succeeded. I believe strongly that protest is needed and warranted. My own daughter uh, marched in the George Floyd protests in front of the Capitol with my blessing. We have to make our voices heard. And quite frankly, the outpouring here, I have not received this many emails on any other issue in the entire time I've served in the legislature. Now, granted, that's four years, but in that entire four years, you know, we live in a state with term limits. I'm, I'm at half-life, so at half-life, I've never, and we've, we've handled some major issues. The red flag law, for example, uh, vaccines, things that really bring people out. Not one single issue has brought me more emails than specifically Elijah McClain. Representative, what would you say to people who think your responsibility was to know about this perceived potential, in many minds, absolute injustice long before now? Um, you know, that's, that's a difficult one. On one hand, I will tell you we did know about it and we have been working on it. One of my major areas is youth incarceration. So I very much look at how do we stop the school-to-prison pipeline. It is something that I work on every day. I was part of the bill that made the greatest change in increasing diversion for our youth in the state, which was another Senate bill. Um, We are working on this. We have been working on this. We have not ignored this. 
but we have not been able to make the sweeping changes that we have been able to make without the help of the community. And I, I think people forget that, that or, or I don't know if they forget or maybe aren't aware how much input they do have, especially in Colorado, on the legislature. And their outcry and their outpouring and their communication to us matters. I am watching these emails come in second by second by second. And the team that you mentioned are all youth that came forward and said, we specifically, specifically want to work to help Elijah McLean's family come to peace. And so they are trained and we are working together because I alone cannot respond to every single email in this timely fashion. I would not be able to go to the bathroom, eat, or sleep. And while I believe that Elijah is worthy of me not being able to go to the bathroom, eat, or sleep, I am so grateful for the community members who have stepped forward and said, we want to help. Okay, to be clear, these were not interns previously. They came on board specifically for this mission? That is correct. What have you learned about yourself, maybe your own privilege, your own connection to systemic racism as a result of this moment? Yeah, so for me, um, a lot of that personal learning came through my son. My son has been a driver of much of the work that I do. He attempted suicide at school when he was just nine years old, and I picked him up from the school um, at the time, and he was sitting with two Denver police officers, and they were sitting there chatting and joking and laughing. And it occurs to me, had my son not been white, that interaction may not have been as it was. And when I think about Elijah and specifically, you know, the transcript hadn't come out um, until recently, but specifically some of his last words of of how he is different And my son is different. I don't know that I could train him to say the right words. And his skin color alone is what would potentially protect him from an outcome similar to Elijah's. And that's not okay. That's absolutely not okay. And when we look at um, things that are happening in Aurora, when I first started getting the emails, I reached out to the legislators, the Aurora legislators, and I asked them if they were getting them, and they weren't getting them. And, you know, it's it's because um, he is my constituent that I am fortunate enough to be the, on the recipient end of these emails. But I spoke with all of them because Aurora, as we work together, It's the job of all of us, and I am only one of two representatives from the Aurora area who is not a woman of color. And to be able to use my privilege and make sure that others become privileged in the way that my son is, it's my duty. It's my obligation. Just reading from the 911 call and the police body cam footage transcript, at various points he says, No, I'm an introvert. And the cop tells him, Stop tensing up. No, let go of me. This isn't going to go well. No, I am an introvert. Please respect the boundaries that I'm speaking. Stop. Stop. I'm going home. Relax or I'm going to have to change this situation. Dude, hey, relax. Sir, can you please? No, we don't want to do this, all right? Leave me alone. No, we're going to First we're off, talk you're, to you guys started to address me, and I was stopping my music to listen. Now let go of me. Get over them. 
Let's get over to the grass. Okay. We're gonna lay you down. Okay. Come on. Don't in the rest. I intend to take my power back. And I intend to be. We're gonna forward with him. Okay. He says, I intend to take my power back because I intend to, presumably, he intends to go home. And then later in the transcript, about eight minutes in. This interaction, this transcript stuck with you, I gather. Yeah. I mean, um, it brings me to tears every time I hear it. Because as a mother, I just see my own child. And he would say those words and mean it. You know, he says, Elijah says, um, you know, the the cops are saying, don't tense up. (laughs) You know, certain kids can't control that. My son's going to turn into a... a a, a pole you won't be able to bend in half. And I imagine Elijah had the same, you know, physical response that that my son would have. And um, there are so many things that each branch of government can do. And part of my mission and part of what I can bring to the table is more training on how to interact and even better how not to interact with our public. And by the way, yeah. I'm now up to 83,004 emails, which is over the amount of constituents I have, officially. That is Representative Daphna Michelson-Janay, Democrat from State House District 30, which includes Aurora, where Elijah McLean lived. Given that it's an election year, it's worth mentioning Michelson-Janay's seat is up this year and she'll face Republican Carrie Gutierrez in the fall. By the way, last night, the Aurora City Council decided to hire a team of investigators to look into McLean's death, specifically if city policies were violated and what might need to change. That's according to Nine News. So again, that means a state inquiry, a federal one, and this local one. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with Homegrown Hate, an investigative series that made Nine News reporter Jeremy Hohola a target. Jeremy joins us. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. CPR is committed to covering emerging stories and delving deeply into the details of what's happening now, telling the truth of the story without hype or compromise. This vital news coverage is made possible through community support. If you're already a CPR member, thank you. Your support ensures impartial journalism, statewide coverage, and an informed public. If you're in a position to make a gift or to increase your giving, help keep CPR strong at CPR.org. As he saw hate crimes rise in Colorado, Nine News reporter Jeremy Hohola decided to investigate homegrown hate. And that's the name of his 2019 series, which just landed him a prestigious national award. Little did Hohola know his homegrown series 
would literally bring this story to his doorstep. And Jeremy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan, for the invite. The award you just won, the Don Bowles Medal, is named for the late newspaper reporter who was killed in a car bombing in Arizona in 1976, which I think is a stark reminder that targeting journalists isn't just a phenomenon on foreign soil. Uh, In any case, tell us more about what prompted you to look at homegrown hate. Well, over the last several years, we've been, you know, seeing these reports come across, you know, our news desk and, you know, that have eventually made our newscasts about, you know, these these cases of vandalism around Colorado involving swastikas at local synagogues, you know, uh, you know, just incidents of hate crimes that we would hear about. And, you know, with the rallies and protests and I started getting tagged online into these local hate groups that were becoming very active publicly on the street. And we decided um, last year to see if we can quantify it somehow by looking at hate crime data from local law enforcement agencies and reaching out to advocacy groups, nonprofits, to get a kind of a, a number of how hate is doing in Colorado. And you saw an uptick in reports of hate crimes. Yeah, we did. I believe from what we reported last year, uh, hate crimes were up 44%, uh, according to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation in Colorado. Meanwhile, they're down across nationally, reported. Uh, and what, you know, there's a big difference between what's reported mm. and what isn't reported because a lot of people out there actually don't report incidents of, uh, of hate crimes. You also make the point that it's not that convictions are up hugely. Yeah. Commensurately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, anytime someone's charged, a lot of times that charge doesn't stick. Um, and so you'll have incidents you know, where, where, where police will respond to a bias motivated crime, but sometimes that charge just doesn't, you know, make it to a conviction. You mentioned some of the vandalism that happened uh, at a Denver bookstore, mm-hmm. I remember w- was one example. Uh, and then there was that plot, I think last fall, against a Pueblo synagogue. Remind yeah. us of that. And that that really kind of, you know, that, that surfaced right around the time we were talking about, you know, working on, on a series about local hate in Colorado. And that, that case was like, okay, we got to do something. And that's when we started, you know, compiling our, our raw data. And then I really wanted to, you know, talk face to face to some of these people who feel emboldened to express them, their, their ideologies. With the synagogue, there was a plot essentially. Yeah. Um, an armed plot against the synagogue that was foiled. Yeah. This man, he had, you know, uh, clear hate against uh, the Jewish community, and he uh, was, you know, engaging with people on Facebook about his plans to blow up the synagogue down there in Pueblo, which is, I believe, Colorado's oldest synagogue. And uh, the FBI got wind of it. And the FBI actually did undercover work, and they were able to, you know, stop this guy from uh, acting out. So you started looking into the people behind these acts and others. I'd like you to start with James Nolan Mason, who at the time of your story was living on public assistance in Denver. Yeah. So we we actually had a file on James Mason that, that has been in our unit for many years. Uh, and we knew that Mason has been in Denver for a long time. But with with the rising feeling of hate and white supremacy in Colorado— and especially with Mason's name starting to make news reports with his connection to Adam Waffen, we decided to look like, who is James Mason? Who is this guy? Mm-hmm. What's he doing in Denver? 
And the more we looked at him, especially over the last several years, he became this godfather figure in a way of this militant group known as Adam Waffen. And he's revered by this militant group as almost like this, for lack of a better word, prophet in a way. Hmm. Adam Waffen, I think, which means atomic weapon in German. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and they've been connected to, I think, five killings? Yeah, a handful of murders. Uh, they're, uh, they're dangerous people because they train with uh, firearms. They, you know, put out videos of themselves training with, you know, uh, with weapons. Uh, they, they want the downfall of the U.S. government. They want the downfall of society. They're known as, uh, let me see if I can pronounce this word correctly because I had a time pronouncing it. It's called, they're, they're called accelerationists, where they want to accelerate violence to the point where the U.S. government uh, and society has like this downfall. And so James Nolan Mason is this, he's not quite diminutive, but just older guy who I think is pretty unassuming looking. You ask for interviews over and over and over again. He doesn't grant them to you. No, I Um, sent him letters. Uh, I went to his uh, apartment in downtown Denver, uh, wrote him, uh, actually sent him a letter in the mail. He wrote me back and saying that he declined an interview because he he didn't want to do it for tactical reasons. Um, I think over the last, you know, two, three years, his name has been highly elevated by Adam Waffen. And uh, if you Google uh, James Mason's name, you'll see that he uh, has been held to high esteem by uh, not only members of Adam Waffen, but just, you know, neo-Nazis in general because of his writings. And Mason has been around for a long time uh, here in Colorado. He's lived here for a while. You do yeah. eventually get an interview with him because you find him in a parking lot yeah. and, and he shares a few words. I, I read that Adam Waffen has disbanded. What What's the deal? Yeah, there's reports out there. And uh, I understand Mason did go to the local Westward and uh, talked about how Adam Waffen has disbanded. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not. I think uh, they came forward and announced their disbanding because, you know, there were members of Adam Waffen, you know, being arrested by the FBI. The FBI was taking a very hard look at these guys, and some of these members got arrested and are facing some serious uh, gun gun crimes. And I think they were starting to get nervous about the fact that the feds were really taking a hard eye at them. What did you learn from talking to him, just briefly? Mason, you know— when I when I encountered him, he's he, he came across. I mean, be, even before I encountered him, I followed him around, and I know it's kind of you know it sounds a little bit creepy as a reporter, but that's what I, was, I do as a reporter. I followed him around just to see what his day is like, and he he comes across as this almost you know nice guy. It's it's it was strange, and I talked to his neighbors, and a lot of his neighbors told me that he was this this nice guy, very unassuming. But then when I encountered him in the parking lot. It became very clear he has a philosophy that is dark, that is very anti-government, and that is 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 almost on on, on the cusp of of directly endorsing violence, mass violence, and he he words things in a way where he can get up to the threshold mm. of, of of almost committing a crime. Uh, to where he says, I'm not, I'm not the one that's telling him, you know, to do these things. You know, I'm not the one that's telling members of Adam Waffen to do these things. So, uh, yeah. 
Nine News investigative reporter Jeremy Hohola joins us. He has won the Bulls Medal. That's from investigative reporters and editors. And when giving you the award, Jeremy, they say that you reported on local neo-Nazis and a group known as the Proud Boys, targeted by extremists who visited his home when his wife and child were there alone, court records show. One Proud Boy member threatened Hohola in a tweet that warned, you are the enemy of the American people. We will bring this to your home, your work, your child's school. Tell me what happened. So I knew going into this story that, you know, anytime you report on white supremacy or hateful groups, especially now that they're, they feel emboldened to, you know, be very open about their views, I knew I was going to get some sort of response that was going to be like this. I didn't anticipate a visit to my home by uh, some of these people. Um, but as as our first part and second part of our series played out, uh, the Proud Boys, which are all over across the country, um, that story was shared, uh, you know, on, on the internet and these, you know, in these groups that Proud Boys, you know, uh, monitor and interact with online. I got a ph- phenomenal response. Um, you know, hateful messages. Uh, and then that tweet really stuck out about, you know, from one local proud boy saying that he wanted to come, wanted to come to my child's daycare, uh, and to my home. Um, and so, you know, my reaction to that, I think, you know, I, I kind of use humor as a defense mechanism. And so on Twitter, I just kind of reacted it to, you know, humorously, but in, in, in the back of my mind, you know, when, you know, I had, a, my, my wife was pregnant at the time, I, of course it became very concerned. Uh, and then earlier this year, um, a few months, you know, after our series aired, I was monitoring another group connected to the Proud Boys, and uh, a few of these guys came to my house, uh, rang the doorbell, and wanted to talk to me. Uh, and uh, that's when we alerted local law enforcement. And then eventually, through the courts, we were able to secure a permanent restraining order against three of them. Do you want to say just a few words about the Proud Boys? You know, the Proud Boys, I, I, they're, they're a group that attracts young men that I believe are looking for something. I think they're looking for a sense of community. I think they're looking for, for a place of belonging. And when you look at a lot of the Proud Boys, uh, they like to say that they're not white supremacists, that they're not uh, a hateful group. But their roots are founded with that ideology. You know, they, 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 the, the local Proud Boys openly protest at LGBTQ events. Uh, they, they use terms that are very hateful against that community, the local Proud Boys. They claim they're not a hate group, but they clearly are a hate group. What did this series, Homegrown Hate, teach you, Jeremy Hohola? I think it taught me that hate has always existed in Colorado, and now, most recently, it's starting to surface, and it's becoming a problem. That's what it's, it's taught me. It, it's always been—hate has always lingered in this state, and now it has swelled. And this is a thread you continue to follow? I, oh, absolutely, yeah. Investigative reporter Jeremy Hohola of Nine News. He just won a prestigious national award for his series Homegrown Hate. When we come back, how a large Colorado family became a case study for schizophrenia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
I'm Rebecca Carroll, the host of a new show called Come Through from WNYC Studios. I was in high school the first time a white friend asked me, why is everything about race with you? And I said, because everything is about race. It's still true, especially right now. Let's talk about it with writers, activists, brilliant thinkers. Join me and come through. Every weekday afternoon at 1 this week on KRCC and CPR News. A Colorado Springs family with 12 children is the subject of a new book. Six of the kids had schizophrenia. The Galvin family became a case study for scientists trying to understand the condition and its genetic markers. Their story also illustrates the challenges mental illness poses for all family members. CPR's Andrea Dukakis speaks with Robert Kolker, author of Hidden Valley Road. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to talk to you. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about schizophrenia, and obviously it's not the same for every person who deals with it. But generally, can you explain how it manifests in people? It's certainly not a cookie-cutter condition, but there are certain hallmarks of of the illness, none of which have anything to do with the split personality that some people believe Hmm. uh, in our culture believe that schizophrenia is. It, It often involves withdrawing from reality. It involves a gulf between perception and reality. Sometimes that's catatonia. Sometimes that's paranoia. Uh, other times it's delusions. Uh, other times it's hallucinations. Um, but in, in every event, it's a very loud disease. The person you knew sort of disappears from view and is replaced by someone you don't recognize, which is what makes it so tragic for families that experience it and what made the family I wrote about so compelling as a subject. And schizophrenia is often a condition that doesn't show up until someone is perhaps in their late teens or early 20s, or at least, you know, the condition isn't apparent to others until then. Is that right? Exactly. There's, I guess there's some overlap between strange teenage behavior and some of the symptoms of what could develop into full-blown schizophrenia by one's early 20s. And so it's hard to to peg, particularly um, with a large family where you may not be paying attention that much or at a time like the 60s and 70s when this family, the Galvin family, was really enduring the worst of the manifestations. And 12 children. I should note that there were 10 boys in the Galvin family and two girls. Neither of the girls had schizophrenia and four of the boys didn't either. Again, six did. But I want to start with the title of your book, Hidden Valley Road. It's the name of the street where the family lived. It was a 1960s ranch style house. Is there something important about the street, the house and its surroundings that tells part of the story? Well, it it's a fortuitous name if you're telling the story about family secrets and about a family that was driven by the stigma of mental illness to stay hidden for so long. Um, it was an upwardly mobile and kind of hip suburban community when they moved there in the 60s. Uh, it was generally populated by a lot of people who were employed by the Air Force Academy nearby who were getting a, their families were getting too big for living on, on the grounds of the Air Force Academy. So they got a nice ranch house of their own. It's a nice wooded area, very, a little different from the rest of Colorado in that area in that it, there were actual trees and wildlife. So they loved it. 
So let's talk about the oldest Galvin brother, Donald. He's the first one you really profile. And Donald, like many of the Galvin kids, was athletic. He was a bit reserved in school. But things really started changing for him as he got older. Tell us about the illness and how it affected him. Sure. The, the, the 12 children, are, by the way, are born during the baby boom. So Donald was born in 1945, and the youngest child, uh, a girl, uh, Mary, was born in 65. And then he went off to college in 64 when, when he was you know, 18 or 19. And then he, um, Donald, uh, um, within a year, was, was becoming a regular at the health services camp, uh, office. He kept walking in with really strange complaints. Um, he thought he might accidentally get a venereal disease from a toilet, things like that. But then things got a little more um, troubling. He ran into a bonfire during a pep rally, and nobody could explain why he did that. He had minor burns from that. He tortured a cat. Nobody could under explain, and, and least of all him, why he did that. Until finally they referred him for psychiatric treatment, which in the late 60s is a huge alarm bell for a family because this is a period where half of the psychiatric community wants to heavily medicate and institutionalize people like this, and the other half wants to blame their mothers for causing the problem. Uh, this isn't an understatement. This, this is a period where the schizophrenogenic mother is a concept that is blamed for mental illness, for schizophrenia, and so the family was immediately scandalized and tried to hope for the best and hope that Donald would work his way out of his troubles. So they shopped around for a good medical opinion, and he stayed in college a little longer, finished college, even got married, but got worse and worse and worse until finally in 1970, he was sent to the state mental hospital in Pueblo after a violent altercation with his wife. And you mentioned um, the mothers that often took the blame, like the mother in, in the book and um, is named Mimi, Mimi Galvin. Talk about the range of effects schizophrenia had on the other five boys. Well, you know, there's this strange period from the late 60s through up until 1980 where it seems like one by one something is coming for this family and nobody's giving them a good explanation of what it is. Everybody sort of suspects that there's something genetic about schizophrenia, but Nobody can really nail it down, and, and part of the story of Hidden Valley Road is the story of scientists trying to figure that out. But it's not a cookie-cutter condition, and so each brother is a little different, and my job in telling the family story isn't just to tell a monster movie about, about the boys becoming sick one by one. It's to talk about them as individuals. Donald was detached from, from other people, had real interpersonal problems, and eventually became hyper-religious and uh, delusional, believing that he was descended from an octopus. And then Jim was very much more paranoid. Jim is the second son, and, and he engaged in a lot of self-harm and then eventually was abusive to his wife and to um, the two younger sisters in a real tragic aspect of the book. Brian uh, seemed fine, but then uh, after breaking up with his girlfriend, he murdered her and then killed himself. And, you know... Um, uh, Joe was, was more poignant than the others. He was more self-aware. He knew when he was having hallucinations. He would look up in the sky and say that, you know, can't you see it? Uh, I'm having a hallucination. A Chinese emperor is talking to me in the sky. But um, it, it, he was really the only one who kind of knew that he was sick. 
Matthew had a psychotic break at a neighbor's at a, at a friend family friend's house. He suddenly stripped naked and smashed a vase. You know, later on, he believed he was Paul McCartney and that he controlled the weather. And finally, Peter was um, was really oppositional and defiant throughout his teenage years. So um, when he finally had a psychotic break, it, it just added another layer of complication, and he he entered this whole cycle of going from from jail to home to the streets and to jail again, um, all on minor charges and, um, and just could never really, uh, be compliant with his medications, which only made life worse for him. And, you know, you just alluded to this. Um, one of the boys ultimately ends up murdering a girlfriend. The boys deal with a lot of trouble and violence in their lives. There's a fighting among them in the house and injuries is there something about the illness that can lead to this kind of behavior? Yes, to the extent that if you aren't entirely engaged with the world around you, you can become anxious. And if you're left to your own devices and there aren't, you know, psychiatric interventions at a young age, you really can become so anxious that that what might be start as everyday conflicts with your family suddenly become more intense. These boys you know, we're growing up during this triumphant period in American history in the 50s where America was ascendant. They were living first at and then near an Air Force base where they had the run of the place and could do whatever they wanted. They had fights in the house, but that seemed normal too. But then the fights got worse and worse and worse, and the parents weren't sure whether to play it as it laid or or to decide that there was something, you know, seriously wrong. And so they they, of course, had no um, sense that schizophrenia was taking over their family, and so they chose to hope for the best. But in, in the meanwhile, the, the injuries mounted and the violence mounted, and it became this kind of unsafe place. My job in Hidden Valley Road is to try to get to the bottom of how much of that is mental illness and how much of that is you know, the times that the family was living in, and I talked to everybody in the family. One nice thing about this book is that everybody in the family spoke for it and everyone's perspective is is engaged in the book. And uh, the sisters were both sexually abused, you mentioned, by one of the brothers, Jim. What was it like for the girls growing up in this kind of household? Uh, I would hope that readers sort of identify with them or relate to them as as sort of the mainstays of the book, that, that you, there are so many characters and so much difficulty um, and so much plot to follow that I, I, I would hope that, that you can keep coming back to the girls as the people experiencing what's going on or witnessing what's going on. And then you see how they move through trauma and their stories are very different from one another, but at the same time, each one is quite inspiring. And there's a lot of material in part two of the book about how they come to terms with what happened to them as children, how they come back into their families on their own terms. And that, to me, was the second big question of the book. The first one was, how could all this happen to one family? And the second question was, how could this family really stay a family? And the sisters help answer that question through their recoveries. And one sort of retreats from the family for a while, and the other is all in as a caretaker. And I wonder if that's sort of representative of what happens with mental illness and and siblings sometimes. Yes, it's... I mean, my big question to them and to others in the family was, why didn't you leave and never come back? You know, this seems like the worst possible family 
circumstance to grow up in, you know, why would you still be connected to the family at all? And they all have different ways of, of answering that question. I think that, um, that even, even the sister who creates boundaries from her family still has not disappeared from her family. She's still, she's re-engaging on her own terms, trying to, trying to heal the wounds of her childhood. Whereas Lindsay, the sister who has gone right back into the eye of the hurricane to take care of her sick brothers, we see incrementally in the book her transition from a girl who only wanted to leave home and never come back to a woman who now is determined to be the caretaker for her sick brothers, which is really an exhausting and thankless job. It's inspiring and it's also instructive to see how different people have different ways of processing very similar traumas. And based on what you've seen um, of the Galvin family, uh, just to wrap up over time, has the stigma changed around mental illness um, at all? Well, the, these were really hard subjects for them to talk about. And the, re- the entire reason they went public, I think, was to try to do battle with that stigma. Things are better now, but they're not great. I mean, I think over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen bipolar illness and depression and anxiety and autism all, you know, but to varying degrees become less less of a stigma around all of those. And schizophrenia may be the last one. It's the one that families talk about the least. Uh, I, I know personally people I know whose lives have been touched by it. They almost never talk about it. Hopefully a book like this can open things up. And based on the reaction to the book so far, I'm, I'm filled with hope about that. Robert, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Andrea. I really appreciate it. Robert Kolker is the author of Hidden Valley Road. It's about a Colorado Springs family in which six of 12 children had schizophrenia and how the family dealt with mental illness. Kolker spoke there with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.